Hi, welcome to our latest Pensions De-Risking podcast. My name's Tim Smith. I'm a professional support lawyer in the pensions team here at Herbert Smith Freehills. And I'm joined today by Ben Seth, a senior associate in our pensions team, and Rosie Phantom, a bulk annuity consultant from Barnet Waddingham. The bulk annuity market continues to go from strength to strength. In 2018, over £24 billion worth of buy-ins and buy-outs were completed, and that looks set to be eclipsed during the course of this year. There are a number of different ways of structuring a buyout. Today, we're going to focus on what's known as a residual risk or all risks buyout, which is one of the options that sponsors and trustees will need to consider if they're going through that process. Today, we're going to explore what a residual risk buyout is and the steps that trustees need to take if they're going down that route. So Ben, what is a residual risk buyout? Well, it's probably worth comparing it to what we would call a standard or a straightforward buy-in or buy-out transaction. In those transactions, the only liability of the insurer is to ensure the benefits that the trustees have insured and have specified in their benefit specification. A residual risk transaction looks to go further than that, so it looks to ensure the risk that those benefits that the trustees have insured are incorrect, or, for instance, if there are missing beneficiaries who have not yet been picked up in the data and come forward at a later date. That might be the errors might be because of an error in the data, it might be a legal error that's discovered later on down the line, or it might be a member comes forward with a piece of paper that no one knew existed that says they've got an entitlement to benefits that wasn't previously administered. So an example might be if after the liability is passed to the insurer, it's discovered that pension increases have been incorrectly administered and everyone should be getting a fixed 3% increase. In that scenario, subject to breach of warranties and those sorts of contractual elements, it would be for the insurer to pick it up under a residual risk policy or under a straightforward buy-in. It would be for the trustees to meet the difference between their insurance and the payment they have to make to members. Um, It's probably worth saying that residual risk is often described as all risks, but it's probably important to bear in mind it's unlikely to be all risks that are insured. Um, There'll be some risks that insurers just will not cover as part of their standard residual risk policy, or there might be some risks that you discover what the insurer discovers as part of its due diligence of the scheme that they just can't insure. It's a particular risk that they just can't can't give their insurance for. Um, So an example might be if a scheme is missing uh, a document. Everyone knows that document is missing, but no one knows what that document says. Something like that might be carved out of the residual risk cover. In that context, the insurer will have done its due diligence, so it will have gone through the uh, scheme documentation to identify it, and we'll come on a bit more later on to what due diligence actually means uh, in this context and what preparations trustees can do to find those sorts of errors. Probably worth saying that just because uh, you might not cover all risks, it doesn't mean that trustees shouldn't look to a residual risk policy. There are many ways to cater for those risks that can't be insured, and sometimes there is a, a big benefit in, in actually going for those residual risk covers, even if you're not going to get every single risk covered. So Rosie, is residual risk cover right for every transaction? So it's really important that schemes, trustees, sponsors spend spend the time thinking about do they really need this cover? Naturally, it's a bit of extra insurance, so you have to pay for it. But not only that, it can complicate a transaction. It requires much more disclosure to the insurer. There's a lot more preparation needed, which obviously has time and cost implications just from a preparation perspective. But it's also really important to actually think about if this is something that you really want to do or really need. We see different drivers here. So for some, 
doing a normal ball community transaction is absolutely fine. They are happy to effectively just ensure what they know the benefit, well, what they understand the benefits to be. But for some, there are different drivers where it does mean that this kind of residual risk cover is actually really important. So, for example, if the sponsor or the trustees are looking for a, a completely clean break or as clean a break as you can possibly get from the scheme's liabilities, then that might mean that this residual risk cover is actually really important. Similarly, if it might be essential to make a transaction viable if there's no recourse to additional funds, whereby you need absolute certainty that the scheme's benefits are able to be insured from day one because a balancing payment may not actually be affordable from within the, the assets that are available. So there are different dynamics here. So it's really important to think about what the trustees want, but not only that, it's thinking about what does the sponsor want too. So this kind of cover can have timing implications. So the preparation work needed can effectively influence when you might be ready to approach the market. Uh, there may be implications from an accounting perspective. So if you're thinking from a sponsor's point of view, then uh, if you strike residual risk cover alongside the buy-in policy, then that buy-in policy can attract different accounting treatment for the sponsor and the sponsor's balance sheet or P&L. So I think the point is here is that there isn't one right answer. It's more of a, there's lots and lots of things to think about. And it really depends on the scheme's particular circumstances, the work that it's done to date in terms of understanding exactly what its benefits are and exactly what it's trying to achieve from the particular transaction. And in your experience, who typically kind of pushes for a residual risk cover? Is it the trustees? Is it the sponsor? So we see we see different situations in different kind of transaction contexts so there may be situations where there is no sponsor so it's the trustees are kind of working out what makes this transaction viable and in that scenario it's the trustees that are saying this is what we need to make this to make this happen um for others it might be a sponsor that genuinely does want a completely clean break from the pension scheme it could be in the context of an MA transaction where there are particular time scales so that effectively doing things the normal way just doesn't work for achieving the sponsor's objectives and then what i would say is also it's a dynamic market so you can plan to allow time to effectively do all the preparation work approach the market structure a transaction in such a way that residual risk cover will be able to effectively be available from the buying's inception but actually insurers could look at an opportunity and say well i can give you you know an even better price at this point or um i'm really minded to kind of work exclusively with you and here's a really compelling offer but by the way it doesn't accommodate this residual risk requirement how do you trustees and sponsor feel about that offer and a lot of the times there is no perfect answer it's a case of working out effectively your wish list versus effectively the offers that you've been given and kind of working through those kind of competitive dynamics to effectively decide which is the best way forward. So I think it's important to kind of put into context, yes, you can plan, but you can't anticipate everything and you do need to be prepared to respond to the opportunities that are available to you. And we know that the buyout market is increasingly competitive uh, what steps do trustees need to take to kind of prepare and put themselves at the front of the queue? And if you're going for residual risk, is there additional things that trustees need to be thinking about? So I th- I'd probably take 
take a step back here. So if you're thinking about buying out a scheme, then it's likely that you're going to be thinking about also winding up that scheme. And to wind up, you need to do an awful lot of things, including thinking about whether your data is accurate, whether your benefits, your understanding of the benefits are correct, and thinking about auditing both of those pieces. And the way I would think about where the transaction fits is if you're thinking about a residual risk transaction, you're likely to have wanted to have done a lot of that work before you start approaching insurers to get quotations for both the buy-in and the residual risk cover. But if you're thinking about just doing the buy-in with no residual risk cover up front, then there is a dynamic as to, yes, you need to prepare fully, but you might not have needed to have done all of that kind of wind-up preparation work as what you would normally do for a residual risk context. Uh, So I think there are definitely additional things to think about in terms of preparation that are needed. Yeah, and from from our perspective, having acted for insurers and look what preparation trustees have done in preparation for a residual risk policy in particular, what have we borne in mind that there is a whole lot of other background work that trustees and advisors ideally need to do to make sure, as you say, they're at the front of the queue and they can demonstrate to insurers that they are execution ready for these policies. So it goes beyond the normal sort of data cleanse and, and data due diligence that the trustees might do on their own scheme before approaching the market. It includes things like have you got every single deed or amending document for your scheme since its inception? Have you done a health check of the big ticket legal items like equalisation, your pension increases, your evaluation? And if you do discover something, that doesn't necessarily mean that residual risk is off the table, but it's much better to go to the insurer having been able to identify a gap or identify a risk that you're asking them to also price in as part of that residual risk cover. It means testing with your advisors whether they have you know, searched in the back rooms for all the hard copy documents to make sure that when you are doing disclosure with an insurer, you are giving everything that's in your possession or everything reasonable that could be have an influence on the terms of the policy. And that then feeds into the types of warranties that you might be asked to give relating to that information. Trustees will be asked to make sure they have properly considered all the information available to them before entering into the policy. So having done that preparatory work, I think that will be a lot easier to demonstrate to ensure that you're ready to go and that you can uh, enter the contract. And what I would say, um, if you know, if in a busy marketplace, if insurers are kind of weighing up where to participate, which cases are warranting are worthy of their attention, then there is an element of you know, the schemes that can definitely demonstrate that they've gone through, they understand you know, all of the documents are available, they can provide a summary of exactly what is available, they know where the gaps are in terms of you know, historic documentation or you know, track record of different benefits or data issues, then those are the schemes that you know, are, are very much more in the pole position for actually earning insurers' interest and attention when looking at these kind of more complex transactions. Great, that's really helpful. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you, Ben. And thank you for listening.